Section 3 of Chapter 16 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.T. Macduff. A History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 16, Section 3. The slaughter had been less than on any battlefield of equal importance and celebrity. Of the Irish, only about 1,500 had fallen, but they were almost all cavalry, the flower of the army, brave and well-disciplined men, whose place could not easily be supplied. William gave strict orders that there should be no unnecessary bloodshed, and enforced those orders by an act of laudable severity. One of his soldiers, after the fight was over, butchered three defenseless Irishmen who asked for quarter. The king ordered the murderer to be hanged on the spot. The loss of the conquerors did not exceed five hundred men, but among them was the first captain in Europe. To his corpse every honor was paid. The only cemetery in which so illustrious a warrior, slain in arms for the liberties and religion of England, could properly be laid, was that venerable abbey, hallowed by the dust of many generations of princes, heroes, and poets. It was announced that the brave veteran should have a public funeral at Westminster. In the meantime, his corpse was embalmed with such skill as could be found in the camp, and was deposited in a leaden coffin. Walker was treated less respectfully. William thought him a busybody who had been properly punished for running into danger without any call of duty, and expressed that feeling with characteristic bluntness on the field of battle. Sir, said an attendant, the Bishop of Derry has been killed by a shot at the ford. What took him there? growled the king. The victorious army advanced that day to Delique, and passed the warm summer night there under the open sky. The tents and the baggage wagons were still on the north of the river. William's coach had been brought over, and he slept in it, surrounded by soldiers. On the following day, Drogheda surrendered without a blow, and the garrison, thirteen hundred strong, marched out unarmed. Meanwhile, Dublin had been in violent commotion. On the 30th of June, it was known that the armies were face to face with the Boyne between them, and that a battle was almost inevitable. The news that William had been wounded came that evening. The first report was that the wound was mortal. It was believed, and confidently repeated, that the usurper was no more, and Courier started bearing the glad tidings of his death to the French ships which lay in the port of Munster. From daybreak on the 1st of July, the streets of Dublin were filled with persons, eagerly asking and telling news. A thousand wild rumors wandered to and fro among the crowd. A fleet of men of war under the white flag had been seen from the hill of Howth. An army commanded by a marshal of France had landed in Kent. There had been hard fighting at the Boyne, but the Irish had won the day. The English right wing had been routed. The Prince of Orange was a prisoner. While the Roman Catholics heard and repeated these stories in all the places of public resort, the few Protestants who were still out of prison, afraid of being torn to pieces, shut themselves up in their inner chambers. Towards five in the afternoon, a few runaways on tired horses came straggling in with evil tidings. By six, it was known that all was lost. Soon after sunset, James, escorted by two hundred cavalry, rode into the castle. At the threshold, he was met by the wife of Turconnell, once the gay and beautiful Fanny Jennings, the loveliest coquette in the brilliant Whitehall of the Restoration. 
To her the vanquished king had to announce the ruin of her fortunes and of his own. And now the tide of the fugitives came in fast. Till midnight all the northern avenues of the capital were choked by trains of carts and by bands of dragoons, spent with running and riding and begrimed with dust. Some had lost their firearms and some their swords. Some were disfigured by recent wounds. At two in the morning Dublin was still, but before the early dawn of midsummer the sleepers were roused by the peal of trumpets, and the horse who had on the preceding day so well supported the honor of their country came pouring through the streets with ranks fearfully thinned, yet preserving even in that extremity some show of military order. Two hours later Lausanne's drums were heard, and the French regiments, in unbroken array, marched into the city. Many thought that with such a force a stand might be made, but before six o'clock the Lord Mayor and some of the principal Roman Catholic citizens were summoned in haste to the castle. James took leave of them with a speech which did him little honor. He had often, he said, been warned that Irishmen, however well they might look, would never acquit themselves well on a field in battle. And he had now found that the warning was but too true. He had been so unfortunate as to see himself in less than two years abandoned by two armies. His English troops had not wanted courage, but they had wanted loyalty. His Irish troops were, no doubt, attached to his cause, which was their own. As soon as they were brought front to front with an enemy, they ran away. The loss, indeed, had been little. More shame for those who had fled with so little loss. I will never command an Irish army again. I must shift for myself, and so must you. After thus reviling his soldiers for being the rabble which his own mismanagement had made them, and for following the example of cowardice which he himself set them, he uttered a few words more worthy of a king. He knew, he said, that some of his adherents had declared that they would burn Dublin down rather than suffer it to fall into the hands of the English. Such an act would disgrace him in the eyes of all mankind for nobody would believe that his friends would venture so far without his sanction. Such an act would also draw on those who committed it severities which otherwise they had no cause to apprehend, for inhumanity to vanquished enemies was not among the faults of the Prince of Orange. For these reasons James charged his hearers on their allegiance neither to sack nor to destroy the city. He then took his departure, crossed the Wicklow Hills with all speed, and never stopped till he was fifty miles from Dublin. Scarcely had he alighted to take some refreshment, when he was scared by an absurd report that the pursuers were close upon him. He started again, rode hard all night, and gave orders that the bridges should be pulled down behind him. At sunrise on the 3rd of July he reached the harbour of Waterford. Thence he went by sea to Kinsale, where he embarked on board of a French frigate, and sailed for Brest. After his departure, the confusion in Dublin increased hourly. During the whole of the day which followed the battle, flying foot-soldiers, weary and soiled with travel, were constantly coming in. Roman Catholic citizens, with their wives, their families, and their household stuff, were constantly going out. In some parts of the capital there was still an appearance of martial order and preparedness. Guards were posted at the gates. The castle was occupied by a strong body of troops, and it was generally supposed that the enemy would not be admitted without a struggle. Indeed, some swaggerers who had, a few hours before, run from the breastwork at Old Bridge without drawing a trigger, now swore that they would lay the town in ashes rather than leave it to the Prince of Orange. 
But towards the evening, Turconel and Lazon collected all their forces and marched out of the city by the road leading to that vast sheep-walk which extends over the tableland of Kildare. Instantly the face of things in Dublin was changed. The Protestants, everywhere, came forth from their hiding-places. Some of them entered the houses of their persecutors and demanded arms. The doors of the prisons were opened. The bishops of Meath and Limerick, Dr. King and others, who had long held the doctrine of passive obedience, but who had at length been converted by oppression into moderate Whigs, formed themselves into a provisional government, and sent a messenger to William's camp, with the news that Dublin was prepared to welcome him. At eight that evening, a troop of English dragoons arrived. They were met by the whole Protestant population on College Green, where the statue of the Deliverer now stands. Hundreds embraced the soldiers, hung fondly about the necks of the horses, and ran wildly about, shaking hands with each other. On the morrow a large body of cavalry arrived. Soon, from every side, came news of the effect which the victory of the Boyne had produced. James had quitted the island. Wexford had declared for William. Within twenty-five miles of the capital there was not a papist in arms. Almost all the baggage and stores of the defeated army had been seized by the conquerors. The Enniskilleners had taken not less than three hundred carts, and had found among the booty ten thousand pounds in money, much plate, many valuable trinkets, and all the rich camp equipage of Turconel and Lausanne. William fixed his headquarters at Ferns, about two miles from Dublin. Thence, on the morning of Sunday, the 6th of July, he rode in great state to the cathedral, and there, with the crown on his head, returned public thanks to God in the choir, which is now hung with the banners of the Knights of St. Patrick. The king preached, with all the fervor of a neophyte, on the great deliverance which God had wrought for the church. The Protestant magistrates of the city appeared again after a long interval in the pomp of office. William could not be persuaded to repose himself at the castle, but in the evening returned to his camp and slept there in his wooden cabin. The fame of these great events flew fast and excited strong emotions all over Europe. The news of William's wound everywhere preceded by a few hours the news of his victory. Paris was roused at dead of night by the arrival of a courier who brought the joyful intelligence that the heretic, the parricide, the mortal enemy of the greatness of France, had been struck dead by a cannonball in the sight of the two armies. The commissaries of police ran about the city, knocked at the doors, and called the people up to illuminate. In an hour, streets, quays, and bridges were in a blaze. Drums were beating and trumpets sounding. The bells of Notre Dame were ringing. Peals of cannon were resounding from the batteries of the Bastille. Tables were set out in the streets, and wine was served to all who passed. A prince of orange made of straw was trailed through the mud and at last committed to the flames. He was attended by a hideous effigy of the devil, carrying a scroll on which was written, I have been waiting for thee these two years. The shops of several Huguenots who had been dragooned into calling themselves Catholics, but were suspected of being still heretics at heart, were sacked by the rabble. It was hardly safe to question the truth of the report which had been so eagerly welcomed by the multitude. Soon, however, some cool-headed people ventured to remark that the fact of the tyrant's death was not quite so certain as might be wished. Then arose a vehement controversy about the effect of such wounds, for the vulgar notion was that no person struck by a cannonball on the shoulder could recover. 
the disputants appealed to medical authority, and the doors of the great surgeons and physicians were thronged, it was jocosely said, as if there had been a pestilence in Paris. The question was soon settled by a letter from James, which announced his defeat and his arrival at Brest. At Rome the news from Ireland produced a sensation of a very different kind. There, too, the report of William's death was, during a short time, credited. At the French assembly all was joy and triumph, but the ambassadors of the House of Austria were in despair, and the aspect of the pontifical court by no means indicated exultation. Melfort, in a transport of joy, sat down to write a letter of congratulations to Mary of Modena. That letter is still extant, and would alone suffice to explain why he was the favorite of James. Herod, William was designated, was gone. There must be a restoration, and that restoration ought to be followed by a terrible revenge, and by the establishment of despotism. The power of the purse must be taken away from the commons. Political offenders must be tried, not by juries, but by judges, on whom the crown could depend. The habeas corpus act must be rescinded. The authors of the revolution must be punished with merciless severity, if, the cruel apostate wrote, if the king is forced to pardon, let it be as few rogues as he can. After the lapse of some anxious hours, a messenger bearing later and more authentic intelligence alighted at the palace occupied by the representative of the Catholic king. In a moment, all was changed. The enemies of France, and all the population except Frenchmen and British Jacobites, were her enemies, eagerly felicitated one another. All the clerks of the Spanish legation were too few to make transcripts of the dispatches for the cardinals and bishops who were impatient to know the details of the victory. The first copy was sent to the Pope, and was doubtless welcome to him. The good news from Ireland reached London at a moment when good news was needed. The English flag had been disgraced in the English seas. A foreign enemy threatened the coast. Traitors were at work within the realm. Mary had exerted herself beyond her strength. Her gentle nature was unequal to the cruel anxieties of her position, and she complained that she could scarcely snatch a moment from business to calm herself by prayer. Her distress rose to the highest point when she learned that the camps of her father and her husband were pitched near to each other and that tidings of a battle might be hourly expected. She stole time for a visit to Kensington and had three hours of quiet in the garden, then a rural solitude but the recollection of days passed there with him whom she might never see again overpowered her. The place, she wrote to him, made me think how happy I was there when I had your dear company. But now I will say no more, for I shall hurt my own eyes, which I want now more than ever. Adieu. Think of me, and love me as much as I shall you, whom I love more than my life. Early on the morning after these tender lines had been dispatched, Whitehall was roused by the arrival of a post from Ireland. Nottingham was called out of bed. The Queen, who was just going to chapel where she daily attended divine service, was informed that William had been wounded. She had wept much, but till that moment she had wept alone, and had constrained herself to show a cheerful countenance to her court and council. But when Nottingham put her husband's letter into her hands, she burst into tears. She was still trembling with the violence of her emotions, and had scarcely finished a letter to William, in which she poured out her love, her fears, and her thankfulness, 
with the sweet natural eloquence of her sex. When another messenger arrived with the news that the English army had forced a passage across the Boyne, that the Irish were flying in confusion, and that the king was well. Yet she was visibly uneasy till Nottingham had assured her that James was safe. The grave secretary, who seems to have really esteemed and loved her, afterwards described with much feeling that struggle of filial duty with conjugal affection. On the same day she wrote to adjure her husband to see that no harm befell her father. I know, she said, I need not beg you to let him be taken care of, for I am confident you will for your own sake. Yet add that to all your kindness, and for my sake, let people know you would have no hurt happen to his person. This solicitude, though amiable, was superfluous. Her father was perfectly competent to take care of himself. He had never, during the battle, run the smallest risk of hurt. And, while his daughter was shuddering at the dangers to which she fancied that he was exposed in Ireland, he was halfway on his voyage to France. It chanced that the glad tidings arrived at Whitehall on the day to which the Parliament stood prorogued. The Speaker and several members of the House of Commons who were in London met, according to form, at ten in the morning, and were summoned by Blackrod to the bar of the peers. The Parliament was then again prorogued by commission. As soon as this ceremony had been performed, the Chancellor of the Exchequer put into the hands of the clerk the dispatch which had just arrived from Ireland, and the clerk read it with a loud voice to the lords and gentlemen present. The good news spread rapidly from Westminster Hall to all the coffee-houses, and was received with transports of joy. For those Englishmen who wished to see an English army beaten, and an English colony extirpated by the French and Irish, were a minority even of the Jacobite party. End of section 3 Recording by S.T. Macduff